Let us pray. Again, Almighty and gracious God, come near and be with us. Pour your Spirit upon us and dwell in us and with us and amongst us. That we might hear your word, that we might rejoice in your word, that we might follow after your word and be ever changed into the likeness of Christ Jesus our Lord, through whom we pray. Amen. And so here we are, entering into the third week of Advent, moving ever so forward through this time of waiting, through this time of preparation for the coming of the Lord. And one aspect of that preparation that is absolutely necessary for us is repentance. Last week and this week, we're hearing about John the Baptist coming before the people, being sent out by God to preach repentance to the people, to remind them, to direct them toward the word, to recognize that the work is being done, the work is about to occur, the promises are all about to be fulfilled because the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is about to enter into the scene. And so John is the forerunner. John is the one who will bring and call forth from the people repentance. He will lead them to repentance through baptism for forgiveness he will lead them through the word for repentance he will call them away from what they were and into what they are to become that they might then be who the lord has renewed them to be and we have so many different threads running through all of our texts this day after all this particular sunday stands out in the midst of what typically in the past has been viewed as more of a penitential season. The Advent, we have purple because we do have a focus on repentance and penitence on <laughs> sorrow for the sins of the, that we have committed. But this Sunday is pink. We have a pink candle that we've lit because on this Sunday, something gets to seep in and be poured out in front of us, and that's joy. The joy of the Lord is revealed to us that calls forth joy from us in the midst of repentance, in the midst of admitting that we are sinners, in the midst of confessing that I am a liar and God is the truth teller, and turning from my lies to God's truth. And it makes sense that joy would permeate at least one week here in Advent. Because Advent isn't only doom and gloom. Advent is about the joy that is to come when the Messiah arrives. Because all of us who are truly waiting upon him recognize what will happen. We see the outcome and the renewal of all things. Because we understand that this Lord has taken on sin to himself in his first coming. In order that all things could be renewed, in order that we could be renewed, in order that he could then fulfill the promises of God to bring about salvation for his people. Because that's how, what it is. God has made promises in the past. And so he sends Jesus into this world to fulfill those promises in order that they could then be poured out upon his people. It's not that Jesus strong arms the Father into saving a group of people, into saving anyone, but the Father has desired to save a people for himself. That's why when he called Israel out of Egypt, he gave them that great and glorious promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will make you my people. 
in order that I can be your God. He desires to have people for himself. He desires to have a group of people that he has saved and redeemed from the sin that we chose to enter into. That is the Lord that we serve, one who has made a promise to save all who come to him. He has promised to do that, and therefore we are freed to come to him. That's what the that's part of the meaning of Isaiah's words about the mountains being laid low and the valleys lifted up is that a pathway will be made for us to come because God the Father has promised a pathway to salvation and given it to us through Jesus Christ such that joy can spring up upon us in the midst of repentance. And then it brings the Father joy to send Christ into this world to fulfill his promises such that the joy that the Father has over us in Christ is the foundation of the joy that we have in the Lord because of what Jesus has done. Our joy comes out of the Father's joy for us in Christ. It is the Father's good pleasure to bring about salvation through Christ. And thus, as we turn, there is joy in heaven. As we repent, there is joy in heaven. And that joy overflows to us because we are given that new heart that can then rejoice in the good and the beautiful. And thus that carries us forward to look at what John has to say to us today and what Zephaniah has to say to us. What Paul has to say to us, what the psalmist has to say to us. All of these individuals are speaking of joy and repentance and salvation coming to us from God. And so it all starts with repentance. We began our journey through our passages thinking about repentance. Over in the book of Zephaniah, we hear in verses 14 through 20, the culmination of God's salvation. We hear that the people are called to sing aloud, that they are to rejoice and exult with all their heart. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Everything in this book before verse 9 is judgment. The very first words out of God's mouth through Zephaniah is, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. God is coming and he's going to sweep everything off of this place, off of this planet, everything, fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, man and beast, all swept away because of the sin that has permeated, because of the idolatry that exist in the world, that exist even in the midst of God's people Israel. And so he's going to bring judgment on all of the world. And Zephaniah goes through to speak of the coming of the Lord. He speaks of how all things will be melted, all things will be destroyed. People will build houses that they'll never be in. And it's those people who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. People who see God as just simply existing out there and having nothing to do with this world. Those kinds of people are going to be caught up in God's judgment. God will bring distress. He'll bring judgment upon not only his people, but the entire earth as well as his people. And it just keeps going and going and going. And all of these words, these promises that God is making about bringing judgment are to drive the people to repentance. He reminds them over and over the results of their sin, the results of their idolatry, the results of their adulteries, the results of their greed and their lying, 
their coveting, the results of their rejection of the law that God had given to them will be judgment and being swept away out of the land that has been given to them. The Lord gives these words of judgment in order to drive his people to repentance, to remind them of the results and the consequences of their sinfulness. Because the people know God's great promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. Thus, when God says he's going to bring judgment, it is flowing out of his promise to be their God and to make them his people, and that there will always be a pathway out of that judgment. That judgment is there to drive us to repentance, to bring the law to bear upon each and every one of us, to cause us to desire repentance. And then in verse 9, Zephaniah's prophecy changes. The sound of it changes. It says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples, that is, the Gentiles, to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. God will call forth a people out of the Gentiles to be his own. For at that time, that is, when I am carrying out my judgments on this earth, at that time I will convert a people to myself. I will bring a people to repentance that aren't part of the Jews who will become part of the people of God, for I will renew the people of God. They will seek refuge with those who are left in Israel. And thus it then turns in the section that we read today that they will sing aloud because the Lord has cleared away the enemies. And one thing I was thinking about this week, and that clearing away of the enemies, it's not merely about the judgment of the peoples. It's not about the judgment there of God casting these people away from himself. But the clearing away of the enemies here, I think, has to also to do with the conversion of their enemies. The turning of the peoples, turning their hearts to Yahweh. That the Lord has cleared away Israel's enemies and taken their judgments away from them by converting us. By converting the people to himself. <clears throat> and thus they are called to be his people, to walk before him, to do justice, to speak no lies. They shall not have deceitful tongues. That is the work of what repentance will bring about in us as God brings judgment and speaks of his judgments. He drives us to repentance. Just as John the Baptist's words were driving people to repentance in his day. He went out crying for the people to turn. He went out crying that the Messiah was about to come and that we should repent, that we should turn from our sins. And there in verse 7, he looks at the crowds and says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Because God can raise up from these stones children for Abraham. Even as the people were coming to be baptized, he's still telling them, repent, turn away from your sins, bear fruits in keeping with the repentance that you have been given and the repentance that you are acting in. And that brings us to the reality that as we repent, as we live a life of repentance, there is a repairing and a restoration that occurs in us that drives us into 
the word that drives us to the Lord, that drives us to depend upon the spirit, that a repair and a restoration begins to occur within us. As the people in the crowds heard this, some, of course, walked away. They came out to do the cool thing, to get baptized, to sit there and confess that they were sinners in need of repentance. But then John got a little too personal and he says, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need the children of Abraham. He can create his own children for Abraham. If you're not going to be bearing good fruit, then you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. That is, if your heart has not been changed, don't come. Because this is for people who are going to be changed. This is for people who are repenting right now, who are seeing that they are sinners in need of salvation, in need of the fulfilling of God's good promises. Those who are ready to repair, who are ready to be restored. And so what did the crowds do? The question that then is constantly asked in verses 10 through 14 of our gospel passages, what shall we do? The people had repented and now they're saying, well, what do we do now? If we're to bear fruit that resembles our repentance, that is in keeping with repentance, tell us what to do, John. How are we to act in this world now? And so he looks at him and he says, if you have two tunics, share with him who has none, and whoever has food, do likewise. There's a general picture. Go and be merciful. Go and give. As God has given his salvation to you, you likewise go and give salvation and healing and help to others. God showed you mercy. Now you go out and show mercy. Share with the great gifts. Share the great gifts that God has given to you with those who don't have them. And then even tax collectors, that hated tribe of people within Israel, those who had sold out their nation to collect money for Rome, they came to be baptized. And they said, what shall we do? Go and quit being tax collectors. No, that's not what John said. He said, keep being tax collectors, but collect no more than you are supposed to do. Fulfill your calling properly. If you're only to collect one denarii from people, only take one denarii. Do not inflate it so that you get a little money to set back for yourself. Only collect what you are supposed to have. To act in accord with the repentance that is yours, that you are showing forth, do what you're supposed to do. Fulfill the proper role as a tax collector of simply collecting what you have been commanded to collect. And likewise with the soldiers, when they came and said, what shall we do? He doesn't tell them to quit being soldiers. He doesn't tell them to abandon Rome, to abandon Herod, to abandon Pontius Pilate. He doesn't tell them to abandon their posts. He says, fulfill your post righteously. Collect. Do not extort money with threats or by false accusation. Quit blackmailing people. Quit using their mistakes against them to get more money for yourself and be content with your wages. Learn contentment. Learn to trust the God who has given you this repentance and this salvation that you are reaching forward to. Live a life consistent with repentance. And a life consistent with repentance is one that will be content with the work that God has given you to do. You'll be content and learn contentment. But all of these are actions that people are continually to live in. It's not just one time go and give. It's not just one time collect what you're authorized to do. It's not just one time to not extort money, but it is a continual thing. The people 
in their repentance are seeking to repair their lives. They're seeking to be restored to live lives that recognize and reflect the restoration work of the Lord in them. Because that repentance that flows out of them, that has come forth from their mouths, is a work of the Lord in them. It's a sign that their hearts have been changed. It's a sign that their hearts have been renewed. And thus, out of that renewal, they desire to have their actions reflect the renewal that has occurred. And so John points to the sins that are in their lives that they need to change. The sins that they need to turn from, the particular things in their lives that they can fix and change and repair. And so salvation is about how we act too because salvation changes our hearts and thus changes our actions and thus reworks our minds in the way that we think about the world. That sounds like a familiar theme also from Ashley Knoll about the Book of Common Prayer. That what our heart desires, our will does, and our mind justifies. Thus, if you desire to live a repentant life, your actions must come to reflect that repentant life. They are called to, and that's not always easy to do. Your heart loves the Lord, but like Paul said in Romans 7, my members do whatever they want. They sin. The thing that I want to do in my heart is the very thing I am incapable of doing because of the sin that exists in the members of my body and my limbs and my mind and my body. I am full of sin. And so you have to tame and direct and shape your actions to be in accord with the heart that loves the Lord. The heart reshapes the will and drives the will to commit right actions. And that's what the repair is on our side that flows out of the restoration that the Spirit has accomplished through our repentance, in light of our repentance, to cause our repentance. And all of that will lead to what we heard about in Zephaniah, to what we hear about in Paul, to what we hear about in the psalm. Rejoice in the Lord always. That is, we repent as we find restoration and repair our lives, we are brought more and more into rejoicing. But it's not just a straight line. It's not just that repentance automatically leads to repair, automatically leads to rejoicing. It is a circle and a spiral of them feeding into one another, but they're interlocked together to where one always leads to the other two. If you're striving to repair your life, under the power of the Spirit, it drives you to deeper repentance because you see the brokenness that you still do. You see the sins you still commit. And as you're repairing and, re and receiving that restoration and living a life of repentance, being driven to repentance, you're also driven to rejoice because in that repentance you know the forgiveness of God. You know that He is working to fulfill His promises in you. And so they interlock together. And as you rejoice more and more and praise the Lord, you'll be driven to want to live as the Lord has called you to do, which will drive you more into repentance. As you repent, of course, you'll desire to rejoice because you know in repentance forgiveness is poured out upon you because of the work of Jesus. These three things that flow out of our scriptures are the reality of salvation, are the reality of the Christian life, and they interlock together to carry us ever forward. They work together. They move back and forth amongst one another, driving us from one to the other two and from the other two to the one, back and forth into one another to where you can't always mark off where one begins and one ends because 
They're mashed together, occurring simultaneously in our hearts as the Lord works and changes us and drives us nearer to Himself. And that ever-elusive joy that we are celebrating this day comes from the Lord. Because it is the Lord's joy to change us. It is the Lord's joy to make us new. It is the Lord's joy to change our shame into praise. He will rejoice over you with gladness, Zephaniah says, because he is in our midst. He is the mighty one who will save. He'll quiet us by his love. He'll exult over you with loud singing. This is what the Lord is doing. Can you imagine that the father exulting with loud singing? He is rejoicing over his people who have come to him, who have responded to the work that he has accomplished in them. And so he rejoices all of heaven rejoices over us. Isn't that glorious? That heaven itself rejoices over our weak repentance, over our weak repair, over our weak rejoicing. Because let's be honest, no matter how much we strive for repentance, it is always not enough. If it was, the Christian life wouldn't be one that is a continual repentance, a continu continual turning away from the work of the old man into the work of the Lord and the new man that is in you. And so our repentance is always stumbling forward. Little by little, we repent a little better. But nonetheless, the Lord rejoices over us for He has given us salvation. <laughs> and that rejoicing trickles down to us in a shower, in a rain that creates rejoicing in us. Because we are freed to rejoice. We are freed to respond. We are freed to react to the Lord. For He has acted toward us to save us. And thus, we can rejoice as well. We can find joy in the work of the Lord. We can find joy in what He has done. You see, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful little quote that I ran across about joy and about doing good. He says, joy bursts into our lives when we go about doing the good at hand and not trying to manipulate things and times to achieve that joy. Joy isn't something we create in ourselves. Joy is poured upon us from the Lord who is already rejoicing. <laughs> And as we are living in that life of repentance and repair and restoration, we are driven into rejoicing because we are doing the good at hand. And joy springs up upon us because joy has been poured out upon us. Joy springs out of our lives because joy has been poured upon us. And as we go about doing the good at hand, doing those things that the Lord has placed in front of us, we discover more and more joy. But if we try to chase after that joy, if we try to do those things to get to joy, if we try to manipulate reality to get to joy, to only fulfill what our heart thinks is joy, what our broken, sinful heart thinks is right and good, we'll never achieve joy, we'll never discover joy, we'll never live with true joy in our lives. But as we do the good at hand, the true good that the Lord has placed before us, the, the Lord commands of us, as we seek to do that through repentance, and living in that restoration, that joy will spring forth out of us. Because the Father rejoices over us already. 
The Father rejoices on our behalf, for the work of the Son is given to us. And the Lord fulfills his promises and acts righteously. We too easily think that righteousness in God is him just simply judging sin. That's the only thing we think of. But it is righteous for God to bring forgiveness and restoration to his people, for he has made his promise to do so. So when God fulfills a promise, regardless of what that promise is, it is him acting righteously. And so for him to say, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will cause that to happen. And when he does, by saving us, by renewing our hearts, by bringing us forgiveness, then he has acted righteously by fulfilling his promises. He has acted honorably by fulfilling what he said he was going to do. And we see that day to day to day in our lives, that repentance and restoration pouring out of us because of the work of the Lord and the joy of the Lord in saving us. And so may we enter into the joy of the Lord. May we enter into the joy of our master, knowing that he rejoices over us, that we might partake of his joy and live the kind of life he has called us to, to live that life of repentance and restoration, to live in line of the fact that Advent is about Jesus coming in the past and in the future and Jesus coming to us day in and day out through word and sacrament, that he comes to us to pour his new strength into us, to pour his joy into us, to bring forth joy out of us. And so this third Sunday of Advent, as we reflect on joy in these coming days, know that the Lord rejoices over you. He does it gladly, and he exults with loud singing, because it brings him joy to save his people. It brings him joy to fulfill his promise to be our God and to make us his people. So may we rejoice in light of God's rejoicing over us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.